Welcome to Let It Lopate at Large. I'm Let It Lopate. A powerful new documentary called Mossville, When Great Trees Fall, documents how environmental racism and social injustice led to the demise of a once thriving and self-sufficient African-American community on the outskirts of Lake Charles, Louisiana. It's from award-winning director Alexander Glustrom, who joins us now. And uh, also coming on are producers Daniel Bennett and Katie Matthews. Uh, we're going to talk about this film, which opens virtually in theaters in New York tomorrow through the Maisel's Documentary Center. Welcome. And Katie, Hi, uh, uh, I don't Thank know, you. is it Daniel, are you there? I guess we still don't have Daniel. Daniel is on. Okay, we still don't have Daniel. Uh, that's a pity because he's an important part of this conversation, but well, let's hope he joins us soon. Uh, Katie, um, can you explain how this thing works, the, the, uh, the film opening virtually at the, the Maisel's Documentary Center? Yes. Hi, Leonard. Thank you so much for having us on. Um, so as, as we all know, we're in some really unusual times right now. And um, in response to these times, you know, films that would normally be uh, screening and opening at theaters around the country, that um, we're trying a new thing called virtual theatrical. And in that, there's a chance for um, local communities to support their local theater or a theater regionally that they love. Um, and the film, then um, you go on our website, www.mossvilleproject.com, and buy a ticket for any of the theaters of your choice or your favorite local cinema, and they will send you a link to screen um, Mossville in the comfort of your own home. Hmm. Now, uh, you uh, are a filmmaker in your own right. Um, how did you get involved in this project? Did you do research for the film? Um, I had met Alex in New Orleans several years ago and was so incredibly um, compelled by the early footage that he had taken with Stacy and of the Mossville community um, and got involved from there and along with Daniel and Catherine Ryerson, um, our other producer, um, worked on you know every every aspect of the of the film to support Alex in his creative vision. So everything from you know uh, producing shoots to um, um, helping in the edit to uh, working with distribution. Now, Alex, you've directed a number of other films, won a number of awards, done commercials and other things. Uh, how long have you been working on this film? So we started in, I think, in 2014. In late 2014 is when we, start, we started shooting. Um, so it was a long process. You know, part of it was the story took a long time to unfold, but also um, it was kind of a scrappy process funding-wise, so, you know, we all were carrying on side jobs in the meantime to, uh, to slowly work on it. Now, you are from New Orleans, aren't you? Were you aware that there was a community named Mossville when you were growing up? Well, I actually grew up in Atlanta. Um, I've been here oh. in New Orleans for about 15 years, um, oh. and no, I really wasn't aware of Mossville. Um, you know, New Orleans can sometimes be a very insular community, and, and um I was really shocked to see that something like this was happening just, you know, a short drive away. Now, Mossville is a community that was founded by formerly enslaved people um, and was largely insulated from Jim Crow laws, wasn't it? Yeah, they were able to be a completely self-sufficient community um, at a time where that was a very difficult thing to be. Uh, they had their own fire departments and they had their gardens where they grew their food, their own farms, their own schools. Um, and they were really proud of their community. Now, we're waiting for Daniel to join us. He should be with us in a couple of minutes. He actually grew up in Mossville, so he can tell us what the community was like before uh, all of the things that have led to the making of this film took place. Uh, it, Mossville went from being a thriving, self-sufficient, almost idyllic place to live uh, to the site of a giant toxic chemical manufacturing plant. Uh, when did the chemical plants first arrive in Mossville? So I, I throw this out to around... both of you. <laughs> Katie, do you, you want to take it then? Sure, I'll, jump, I'll step in. Um, uh, so in the 1940s, during, um, during the war effort, uh, sort of, that was the first signs of industry coming into um, this area. And it, it came in in the name of progress. And it was, you know, it was a really exciting thing for people. And, um, the economic promise 
um, the, the, the promise of being a start of a part of a bigger sort of um, industrial development was really exciting for communities. And then over time, um, more and more plants began to surround the town. And I would say it was probably, in, Alex, correct me if I'm wrong, but the 70s and 80s when local communities um, first began to really understand the price that they were paying for this kind of um, industrial progress and sort of they were on the, the losing end of the progress that was maybe benefiting other white communities around them um, as people began to be sick from pollution, um, as their sort of uh, well water was contaminated with spills, um, as they had to shelter in place and that became normal parts of their life. Um, and that's when uh, some homegrown activism really began to start in the community, um, working at first on their own and then with um, national global partners like Greenpeace to start to try to fight back against and hold these um, in industries accountable for what they were doing locally. Had the community originally uh, greeted uh, the arrival of the plants because uh, they might be a source of, of good jobs? Yeah, Alex? I think, you know, from, from, oh. No, on. either one. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, People will figure out who's that. talking. I think, I think when, in, you know, some of our research, and it's hard to speak to what was happening in the 1940s, um, but from what we learned in research, that it, it was seen as a positive thing. And, and these were, you know, the first the first industry to come in was seen by the by the communities surrounding the Calcasieu River there at large to be positive. Um and, and to be able to be something that provides jobs. And I think that's still a really complicated question for communities um, that are that have industries in them. You know, there's still a lot of division around these same questions of, you know, is this is this good for the economy? And, and is that an important price to pay um, for, for our health and safety? No, no, Alex, uh, at the center of this film is a man named Stacy Ryan. How did you meet him? Well, so I was approached by an environmental rights activist named Monique Hardin. Um, she's a really well-known figure in the environmental justice and civil rights space in Louisiana. Um, she's a lawyer and an activist, and she approached me after a panel discussion for my last film, Big Charity, and she told me she wanted to take me out to, to Mossville. Um, mm -hmm. And I could tell by the way she said it that the, this place held a lot of significance for her. And um, she took me out there and started introducing me to residents and, um, yeah, I met Stacey Ryan on my second day in Mossville and, and knew right away that um, his story was a really compelling one and that he would be a great central character to the film. Because he was standing up to the, uh, the, the, com the companies that were coming in. Hadn't he lost his father uh, as a result of this? Yeah, he lost both his father and his mother, a brother, many relatives. They lived in, in one of the most industrialized parts of the town, the neighborhood um, that was closest to the nearest petrochemical plant. And they also lived right near the site of a major ethylene dichloride spill into the ground um, that contaminated their drinking water because they had wells. And so his entire family um, got sick to varying levels, and many of them died. So he decided to stay despite that? Yeah, yeah, he um, he felt a responsibility to kind of hold his ground. Um, you know, we talk about this idea of existence as resistance, and in a lot of ways, I think Stacy felt that him staying there was was his form of fighting back. He just refused to leave, and he, you know, part of it is he had nowhere to go because he'd lost so much of his family. But part of it was that it was his way, his way of standing up and trying to bring attention to, to what was happening. And he made a promise to, to his dying mother that he would he would hold down their land. And so he did. Uh, and we we suffer with him as we watch the film. Um, what's a, a fence line community? So fence line community is a common term in the environmental justice community, and it refers to communities that live on the fence lines of industrial plants. So all around the country, you know, almost every, every city and state has a number of industrialized plants, and they often have people who live um, right next to these plants who breathe the air that's contaminated by the fumes coming out of the plants. And, um, you know, we find all over the country that more often than not, these communities are communities of color, are the ones who are forced to be fed by communities. Uh, do they ever have any say in the matter? 
as to um, whether these companies can move in? Yeah, I think to varying levels, you know, there are public meetings that happen and, um, you know, I think the fight looks a little bit different in every state. Um, and I think that we would like to think they have more say than they actually do. I think that for a lot of folks who live next to these industrial plants, um, they, you know, one of the reasons why it's often minority communities is that they're easy to push around. And so they really don't have as much of a say as I think most of them would like to have. Katie, you mentioned the chemical spills and fires that release toxic fumes, which are frequent uh, occurrences with chemical plants, uh, and definitely was the case in Mossville. According to The Intercept, the average dioxin level present in Mossville residents was triple that of the general U.S. population. Uh, now, isn't dioxin one of the worst known carcinogens? It is, yes. And, and is it simply that they're, they're breathing it in? They're breathing it in. They're, um, you know, ingesting it um, in their water supply. They, Mossville residents, you know, had a, had a well supply of water, and um, there was a giant ethylene dichloride spill um, and cover-up by um, a plant in the, um, in the 80s. Um, they're, you know, ingesting it. A lot of the, um, as Alex mentioned, um, a lot of sustainable farming happened in Mossville, you know, traditionally, but also, you know, through, even through today. And so folks are ingesting it in their food supply. Um, every, every way that you could come into contact with these chemicals, um, this is how fenceline communities are living. Um, a lot of, a lot of fenceline communities and particularly Mossville are, you know, some of the most connected to the earth and to the land. And um, it's this really um, kind of, you know, uh, really sad irony that they're um, the ones who are, are then coming most in contact with chemicals. We're talking about a new documentary called Mossville, When Great Trees Fall, with uh, its director, Alexander John Glustrom, and producers Katie Matthews and Daniel Bennett. And Daniel Bennett joins us now. Uh, Daniel, didn't you grow up in Mossville? What was it like when you were a kid? Uh, growing up in Mossville, honestly, it was great growing up as a kid. Um, we spent a lot of time at the recreation center. Um, my mom, uh, before I was born, actually worked at the swimming pool. Uh, a lot of sports and athletics together with the community members. Everyone kind of knew everyone. And uh, I, I thought that it was one of the most amazing places ever. You know, um, you could see horses at any time, four wheelers, and it just was a really uh, rural place, country place, and we all loved each other. And um, I didn't realize, you know, just how odd it was. You know, there were a lot of spills that we had to deal with. One of the things that was odd, or now I figured out was odd, is that um, we had to do shelter in place pretty regularly. So. We'd uh, hear an alarm, and then that would mean to go inside, close all doors and windows. Um, but I, I just didn't realize how irregular that was. But um, other than that, growing up in Mossville, I, I'd imagine was a lot like growing up in almost any community that was a small-knit, close community. How big was the town at the Ed's Peak? I, I'd say there were close to uh, five to 8,000 people at, at its peak, you know, um, but Pretty much all formerly ins descendants of formerly enslaved people, and and free and people who had uh, never been slaves. Yeah, it's, that it was kind of a, it was almost like a refuge, you know, in in yeah. the middle of the, in the middle of America, you know, it was one of those situations where, you know, everybody was a descendant of someone who was you know once enslaved. And uh, your parents. Uh, had been longtime residents. They've they became environmental activists. Yeah, my dad is uh, Delma Bennett and Christine Bennett. I'm sure if you just kind of threw one of those names into Google, you'd find a lot about them. Um, they aren't just you know activists. I, I think they believe it to their core. Um, just a few months ago, my mom was at the state capitol, still protesting, still you know fighting for equal rights to clean air and clean water and she's in her late 60s at this point she was actually pushed down during that event you know uh just trying to be in the heat of things you know were they and, forced uh, to move 
They were, well, so forced to move, yes and no. I guess that's a really difficult question. They did not want to sell their property. Uh, the Sassol buyout was, quote, unquote, voluntary. And so uh, my parents decided to hold out. They, they were one of the fortunate ones who could afford to leave without Sassol's assistance. You know, and so they still own their property in Mossville. They still, you know, can go to that property at any time they please, you know, and not be subjected to it. But, of course, they, they left the area just because it was unhealthy. And um, from some of the buyouts of other refineries in the past, when they would buy out a, uh, an area, they wouldn't maintain it. So living in Mossville now is, is really odd because it's a lot of trees that weren't there, a lot of wildlife that's kind of retaken over. So you would kind of almost be living in the woods, you know? They Were they offered a fair price for their home? And was Stacy? Absolutely not. Um, and that's, that's, the, that's the difficulties for a lot of the people in the buyout area. So the buyout had a set amount, you know, regardless of what a property was worth. And then your property value was appraised by people who were kind of already in Sassol's pockets. You know, and then once your property was appraised, they told you that you had to return road home money that you got from the Rita hurricane. And um, there were a lot of other things that came into play with the buyout. For some people, it was, you know, air property. So no one actually was a set owner. It had to be split into so many different places. But I think the easiest way to explain it is the way my father does. Um he has a four-bedroom, two-bath property with probably over 3,000 square foot, you know, in Mossville, right? So if he were to relocate, given the circumstances, all of the realtors and all of the uh, the real estate in the area has gone up in value because there are people in the market. And so to be able to purchase a home of the same caliber, you know, outside of Mossville and in one of the other communities, the buyout amount would not have allowed him to do that. He would have actually been in debt, whereas he owns his home already. But if, but he can't sell that house in Mossville because the air is polluted. No, exactly. And 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 the ironic thing about it is, when the offers were made, Sassol said that they were buying polluted property, as if they didn't know why it was already polluted. We'll get to Sassol in a little while. But um, I want to talk about some of the other people in the film. The film also follows Erica Jackson as she struggles to find a new home. Did everybody know everybody? Everybody absolutely know everybody. And, uh, I mean, we still keep keep in touch the best way we can. Uh, obviously, with uh, the pandemic situation, no one's really in person. But we have uh, community Facebook pages and we all kind of just kind of stay in touch the best way we can. But, yeah, absolutely. I went to school with Destiny, who is um, Erica's relative, and um, we all we all lived, like, right around the corner from each other. I remember going by their house, and they, they were really big on dogs, and my family loved dogs. So, yeah, absolutely. So let's get to Cecil, um, and I throw this out to uh, all of you, Alex, uh, Katie, and Daniel. Uh, what is Cecil? Isn't it an acronym for South African Synthetic Oil Liquid? What's it doing in, in uh, Louisiana? Yeah, well, Cecil reaches all around the globe. I mean, they are truly a multinational um, oil and gas corporation. So they have plants um, in, from Africa to the U.S., Asia, all over the place. And, you know, as you see in the film, they have a very dark history. Sassol was founded during apartheid when there was an oil embargo on Sassol on South Africa from the rest of the world. And so they created their own state-owned energy company. Um, some people say that Sassol was formed to keep the lights on for racial apartheid. And Katie, what does Sassol produce in Louisiana? Um, they, they do uh, gas to liquids work and, um, you know, petrochemicals that, go to produce a lot of things that we use every day, a lot of plastic, PVC piping, um, materials that we interact with on a daily basis globally. Did anyone see irony in the fact that a, a company with a history in, a, uh, in apartheid was coming to an African-American community? Absolutely. There's, there's that. not any irony in that. That's almost intentional. <laughs> They, they take yeah. over the they take over the areas where people are disenfranchised and they can't fight back. 
you know, where, where the funds are not there. Um, there was one part of the film that we didn't include that um, one of the attorneys, a, a white attorney in the area said, while pointing at South Lake Charles, that the people over there would never allow this to happen on that side of the bridge, which is true. You know, they, they, had the, they have the financial backing, they have the representation to prevent something like that from happening. So to me, it's not ironic at all. It's intentional. But didn't Cecil uh, do something similar in South Africa? And in, in that case, uh, the community was white. It, no, it, it's always... It was it was it was uh, it was not white in, in South Africa as well. No, in South Africa, it, it was not a white community that was affected. In fact, what they did is they relocated a white community um, in order to build a plant that had an effect on the black community that lived there. Uh huh. Well, uh, now what about uh, the the the, uh, the governor Bobby Jindal? He's a uh, why did he welcome Sassol? You know, Bobby Jindal was carrying on the long tradition of Louisiana looking to dirty industries for economic development. And he invited them into Louisiana with big tax incentives. And, you know, Louisiana welcomed Sassol with open arms, just like it welcomed many other foreign and domestic oil and gas companies to build infrastructure here. He, uh, he said that uh, the company would invest 8 to $10 billion in the state. Did that happen? And did Mossville residents see any of, of the investment? Daniel? So 8 to $10 billion into the state means 8 to $10 billion in Louisiana's infrastructure and Louisiana's roads and schools and those types of things, right? And so when you look at it, I guess, it's almost it's almost loaded because to say that you know any Mossville residents saw it not directly um, to say that Louisiana residents saw it would be a, a hard stretch as well. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Louisiana, but our infrastructure here is absolutely horrendous. Um, the Calcasieu Bridge is one of the poorest rated bridges in the country, you know. And if that eight to ten billion had been invested, you'd think that uh at least something like that would have been taken a look into. You know, our education system is one of the poorest in the country. So uh, did they see it? I guess you could say yes, but where did it go? Hmm. I have been to New Orleans, but that's about it. Uh, now, we are talking about an existing community. How was Sassel able to get the residents' land to, to build their plants? So with Alex um, all uh, or Katie? Go ahead, Daniel. Who wants to jump in? Daniel? Go ahead, Daniel. Uh, uh, I mean, I was just going to say it's a cycle of refineries. So Sassol, um, basically, aside from the, the new property that they received by, you know, the buyout area, they all, the, the refineries have a history of just kind of changing names. So at one point, it may have been Kinde Avista. At one point, it may have been Certainty. At one point, you know, they just kind of changed names, but the infrastructure is already in place. And that's kind of what happened with Sassol. Sassol just purchased one of the refineries and then expanded on. And then they just went out and started uh, offering people money for their homes. Um, according to the film, Sassol offered Stacey Ryan $2,000 for his house. Uh, I don't know whether that was the going rate at the time, but I suspect that it was rather low ball. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah. Stacey's area, yeah, yeah and that was a terrible offer. And I'll just add that Stacy. There's a difference between where Stacy lives and where, um, you know, Daniel's family and Erica and her family live. Um, Stacy is in an area that was previously contaminated by ethylene dichloride by a different uh, petrochemical plant, and many, most of the people who were living there had moved off that land by the time that the film starts and meets Stacy. So that's why that land was so easy to acquire for Sassel as the site of a new petrochemical plant. They only had a few um, remaining community members who were living in that part of town, and Stacey was one of them. And that's why they thought they could do such a such a lowball number. To now, why did he feel it was so important to stay in his house? He's he's a doting father, but in the film, he says his son isn't allowed to live with him. 
Yeah, once the construction began, they decided that it was safest for his son to live um, with his son's mother on the other side of the of the river. Um, and you know, this was this was Stacy's Stacy's way of standing up. You know, we we talk about how in a lot of ways Stacy's fight reflects the the very founding of Mossville is this idea of just wanting to be left alone and this idea of of just wanting to exist and that being a form of activism within itself. Now, how many family members has he lost to cancer? Uh, you'd have to ask him that, but at one point in the film, he rattles off maybe six, seven names. Um, his aunt, Miss um, Deborah Ramirez, she collects obituaries, and um, we interviewed her. She, she didn't um, actually make it into the final version of the film, but she has a collection of obituaries of family members that they've lost, and uh, you know, it's, it's quite the stack. Yeah, and many of them young, uh, between 34 and 56 years old. Daniel, is, is that experience similar to uh, other families that you know of? I've lost at least four that I can count. Um, I want to say three of which happened, happened during the process of this documentary. You know, And so I think it would be fair to say that a lot of people in the community you know, have dealt with it. I mean, just, just our corridor of the United States is called Cancer Alley. Now, Alex, you shot in his home and his yard. Uh, can you describe it? Didn't his local government say now that his property is, is heavy industrialized so they can't provide him with any services like sewer, water, or, or even permits uh, for electric? Was that a, a ploy to force him to move, or is that just reality? Yeah, I mean, they cut him off of all all utilities, and I think that it was an effort to try to get him to leave. I think they thought that once they cut him off electricity, there's no way that he would stay there. Um, but Stacy's an incredibly determined and resourceful person, and he was able to to build his own little sustainable battery bank and generator system, and he had a sewer system that he built with big tanks. He had his own water filtration system. At one point, he had a solar panel. Um, he just, he was very resourceful, and it was like every every step they took to try to get him to leave, he took it as on as a challenge and um, fought back. Katie, did you and meet with officials who took away his services? Yeah, um, I wanted to just add, too, one more thing to what Alex was saying, Leonard, and then I'll answer that question. Um, you know, a big, a big tactic of these plans is to, is, and sort of the psychological terror of this, is to um, treat people as if they don't exist and is to invisibilize this, these communities. And, you know, you see this as what happens to Stacey with his sewage and water, his interactions with, with plant workers who don't even uh, acknowledge him. And even as Erica walks her dog in the film past construction workers and they're just building a whole construction site around her as if she, she doesn't live there. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll just to answer your, your second question, um, we, we were constantly, and Alex can also speak to this, sort of harassed by um, local officials but also uh, folks that were associated with the industry. Um, one time in particular, particular, I remember being brought um, into Sassol's sort of central office to meet with their um, director of communications. Um, and so we were interacting with them. Um, and we did actually request repeatedly um, for them to uh, give a statement or to, to do an interview for the film, um, but they declined. Now, they have resorted to dirty tricks to force Stacey Ryan off his land, like blocking access to and from his house. So does he have any recourse? No, not anymore. I mean, when he, you know, we don't want to give away the, the very end of the film. Um, no, of course not. But, but no, I mean, it was, it was a, it was a very, I think for all Mossville residents, it's safe to say that using uh, the legal system to fight back has not really been a great option for them. There hasn't been much success um, for lawyers who represent Mossville residents um, fighting against these, these huge corporations and their legal teams. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We'll get back to this conversation after we take care of a little bit of other business. First this. The lights from the chemical
This is uh, the first week of WBAI's May fundraiser. So before I get back to my conversation with the people behind a new documentary, Mossville, When Great Trees Fall, I'd like to ask you to consider contributing to this station to help us weather the storm of financial problems that the pandemic has, has brought upon us. We need all of our listeners who can see their way to making a contribution to step up right now and go to our website, give to wbai.org. That's give and then the number two, wbai.org. Or to call 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and the station on the air. Again, and remember, we've been here for over 60 years, and yet uh, this is a particularly precarious time. Again, that number is 516-620-3602. You can go to our website, give to wbai.org. And one great way uh, and an effective way to support WBAI throughout the year um, is to spread out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or bank account each month. Um, but you'd become a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. So uh, whether it is uh, $10 a month or $15 a month or $20 a month, uh, as long as you want to keep it coming, we really would appreciate it. It also allows us to plan for the future. And and not worry every month about where, whether we're going to be able to pay our bills. And we, you know, we have all the bills that you can imagine. We, but we have other bills, not just rent and and uh, the electricity and uh, fixing up equipment and the things you might imagine. But also, we have to pay for our transmitter. As a special offer, the next six listeners who sign up to become BAI buddies in the name of Leonard Lopate at large will be invited to attend a teleconference with me that we're calling my dinner for with Leonard. It, it was 10 originally, but four people have already signed up. Uh, so 10 listeners will join me for a virtual dinner where we can talk about the show and you can ask me anything you like about my 43 years of working in radio and talking to some of the most interesting people in the world. I'm really looking forward to meeting everyone who's contributed and hearing your thoughts. But um, I hope that you will do it in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large so that you actually can be invited to the dinner. Again, the number 516-620-3602 or go to our website, give to wbai.org. And even if you can't or are not interested in going to the dinner, we really hope that you would consider becoming a BAI buddy. It is such an important way for us to uh, to know to be able to plan for the future. And thank you, all of you who um, have uh, called in or, or will call in. Uh, we're back with Alexander John Gustrum, Daniel Bennett, and Katie Matthews. Uh, their film, Mossville, When Great Trees Fall, opens virtually in uh, theaters around New York tomorrow through the Maisel's Documentary Center. Um, Daniel, do uh, the residents feel guilty that their town uh, the town that their ancestors uh, built has is being pretty much erased? I don't know that it's guilt so much as uh, disheartened and um, dis disappointed. And, and we we all feel like it was kind of done unfairly. You know, um, a lot of it was outside of our hands. There was a, decide, a, a kind of a divide and conquer tactic used. They got some of the prominent community members they paid them off, they put them on their team, and they kind of coaxed them into getting the rest of the community behind, you know. And once, you, once you've once you taken a, a large enough portion of the community, the rest either follow suit or they're left, you know, mm. holding the rest, holding the rest of the pieces, you know. And I, I think that's really what a lot of them are facing, you know. Um, it, it wasn't a rich community. So what happened is they dangled dollar amounts in front of, rather poor people's faces that they had never seen before. And they were like, hey, here's this. But they didn't know any of the other ramifications that came along with it, you know, especially the people who had air property. You know, they had already agreed to sell, but when the check was cut, it was cut in the name of all of the heirs. So while it may have been $100,000 for this property, oftentimes it was split into 12, 15 people. So nobody really got a significant amount to really do anything with. I was thinking that Mossville should be landmarked for its historical significance rather 
then turned into a toxic industrial site. Are there lots of Mossville's around, or is this a, a, a kind of a unique place? Does anybody uh, know, Katie? I'll let um, yeah. I'll let Daniel. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, oh, Daniel. Go ahead, I was just going to say that I think that Mossville is unique in a lot of ways, um, but I think in a lot of ways it's actually not very unique in Louisiana. I think that um, Mossville is unique in, in its success up until a certain point. They were able to really find um, self-sufficiency in a way that, that led them to be a sustainable community for so long. But you see you know, they don't exist as much as they used to because they've been slowly wiped off the map, but there are other um, similar instances of towns that were founded by formerly enslaved people who were able to, to build their own self-sufficient community. Unfortunately, there's there's not very many success stories of them. Alex Sassel said they intended to run the Mossville operations as a secunda in Louisiana. What's a secunda? And, and uh, where does that name come so, from? So secunda is a place in South Africa and it was the, the second flagship industrial plant for Sassol, why they call it Secunda. And Secunda is the biggest single point emitter of CO2 on the entire planet. Uh, so it's one of the most polluting industrial plants in the world. Um, and we, when we went to South Africa, we visited this place and um, you know, we thought that the chemical plants in Louisiana were big and bad, but South Africa was a whole new level of, of scope and pollution and destruction, and and also the amount of people who live under these plants and the conditions they live in um, were even worse than what we've seen in Louisiana. So, uh, should we assume that Mossville will turn into uh, a secunda? I mean, already we it was just documented that the area around Mossville had the highest rate of um, particulates in the air of anywhere in the country. Um, they had to close the highway just like, was it last week, Daniel? They had to close down one of the roads because the air quality got so bad. Yeah, it was about last week. Katie, where's the, the township of Zemdela? And what does Zemdela mean? Um, Zemdela is a township um, in South Africa, not far from Johannesburg. Um, and in the movie, um, one, of, one of our um, activists, from um, Zamdela area, Caroline um, talks about it, it meaning, you know, people who are forgotten or forgetting about people um, because it was a place where a lot of um, people from different parts of Africa were, or South Africa, excuse me, were sent to um, work at the Sassol plants there and, um, you know, sort of losing, losing an identity, losing a connection to home um, when you're sort of shipped off like that um, and, and face some of the really horrible health um, health implications that, that come with working at plants. So what's life like for the residents there? Um, I guess it's hard. It's much, yeah. yeah, it's much very similar to, to circumstances uh, that we see in Mossville. And Alex can speak to it, too, um, as he was there. Alex, uh, yeah, I mean, Sam, go ahead. I was just gonna just gonna say, yeah, it's, it's a hard place to be. Um, you know, there's there's thousands of people who live right under these plants there, um, and there are other plants nearby. There's a coal mining facility right there, a coal mining operation happening right there, and um, there's incredible sickness that people deal with. Um, we talked to some elementary school teachers who didn't want to go on camera, but they said that their kids are constantly having nosebleeds, constantly getting sick, and you know, there's there are some times where when the wind blows just the right way and all this coal ash and pollution kind of just descends on the town and you can, you can hardly see um, up the road because it's, there's so much just black smoke in the air. Um, but then at the same time, there also is a really strong um, activist presence there. And the people who we met in Zandela were very inspiring. There's, there's really lots of organizing energy that's happening there. And um, I think that there's an incredible activist spirit in South Africa following the anti-apartheid movement, and you see that carried over into the environmental justice movement. And you spoke to one of those organizers in South Africa, Samson Mokoena, who says that environmental injustice and racism 
were built on the concept of disposable others. What, what does he mean by disposable others? I think that what he, what he's talking about, I mean, it's the same thing that you, you've seen throughout history. I mean, it, it, is, it is the way that predatory capitalism operates is um, often industries go into um, communities of color and they extract land and resources and cheap labor from these communities. And this is something that has carried on since colonialism and the slave trade. And it's, it operates under the idea that um, people are disposable and that you can, you know, it, racism was founded as a justification for this same type of capitalism. If you treat people as less than equal, then you can extract land and resources from them. And that's exactly how these oil and gas facilities operate all over the world. Katie, what's the impact on a community when its members are forced to disperse? What did you learn from talking to the, the former residents of Mossville? Yeah, I think there's um, just a tremendous amount of, of grief, um, a tremendous and deep um, psychological impact of, of um, feeling like a piece of your identity has been taken away. Um, this is happening all over our country as we see climate change um, having a bigger and bigger impact on and, and, and first and foremost and most greatly on vulnerable communities. You know, we see people whose entire, entire life and identity is built around place. Um, and we see that, you know, we see that being stripped away. And there's, there's really nothing to compensate for something like that. One of the people in the film, Erica Jackson's daughter, says that it feels as if Cecil is erasing Mossville. Alex, how did it feel to walk around the town with her? Um, it felt like you're walking through a graveyard, you know, and you see all these foundations and the steps that still lead up to where the house was, and you can see, you know, where the chimney was, and it, it just looks like a, a ghost town where, where the only thing you see is the remnants of a place that once was, and those foundations and houses and people have been replaced with dump trucks and construction machinery and plants and industrialization. Daniel, where are you living these days? I live in Mossville. is literally 10, 15 minutes away from Mossville. Um, it's a it's a white community, um, but the plants are not. You, you can't even see the plants where I am. Um, so there, there's kind of the difference. It's uh, not. A, I mean, I won't even go to say it's a, a whole lot better air quality wise, but. Um, it's definitely better than being right underneath it. Now, what has been the response of the white communities to what happened in Mossville? Have they shown any concern? Um, I mean, there are some. There's always some, you know, and it, it's not necessarily a color uh, guideline, you know, but there are some. But the thing is, uh, here in this area, um, one of the other people, my, my father that was interviewed, he mentioned I was kind of a double-edged sword, you know, in this area because it's a small college and work town. You know, there's not a whole lot else to do other than uh, the college that we have here and then work. And so uh, we have a lot of people who come to the Lake Charles, Mossville area simply to work at the refineries. And so one of the most uh, sought-after jobs in this area is to work at the refineries. So when you start to question oil and gas and you start to question these refineries, you're not going to get a good response because a lot of these people's livelihoods, which they're paid well, you know, even my uncles, some of my uncles work for the refineries and they know what it's doing to their bodies. I actually had one uncle who said he knows that working for the refinery is going to take 10 years off of his life, but at least his family will be well taken care of. You know, they have a nice house, nice cars, you know, and, and, and that's kind of the catch 22. You know, so the re the reception to saying anything about the refineries is never good, you know, and, and well, these refineries are smart about it. Well, while I was watching the film, I was thinking about some of the things I've been seeing on the news recently, especially conservatives uh, complaining about government overreach and uh, and the protection of property rights. How did that apply here? Uh, 
did people had what happened to people's property rights were they just totally denied it, it was all in the buyout uh, structure so um there wasn't much re representation for the people when they did the voluntary buyout um there weren't attorneys in place saying hey let me read over this contract for you before you sign it and so oftentimes when people did sign you know saying hey yeah i agree thinking that they had a better deal than they had, they signed over property rights, you know, uh, mineral rights. They signed over pretty much everything. Well, I would imagine also, in fact, the film points it out that uh, these many of these houses were sold for uh, quite little, and then people had to go out and find homes in other areas that would be more expensive. So how did they work out the finances? Uh, a lot of them didn't. A, a lot of them kind of just ended up in places wherever they could get in, and they ended up in other impoverished areas, other areas that weren't much different. You know, I know with some of the first buyouts in um, the area that Stacy lives in, with some of the first buyouts, they just moved across the tracks in Mossville. So there's the Bel Air, Lincoln Heights area where Stacy was, and then within, you know, uh, a half a mile distance, you were in the, the Mossville area, and most of them just kind of moved over. And that's the same thing that's happening now. A lot of people are just moving right up the street. Now, we have very little time left, but Katie, I was wondering about some of your other film projects. What are you working on these days? Don't you also direct films? Yeah, we're, definitely. We're, um, I'm working on a project right now about um, a college community grappling with sexual violence and have worked on films about um, uh, climate change in the past. Yeah. And uh, Alexander, uh, this film has uh, won awards, but you've won awards for other ones as well, a, a documentary called Big Charity. What was that film about? Big Charity was about New Orleans-famed Charity Hospital, which was the historic and um, one of the oldest hospitals in the country. Um, it's kind of like the, the Bellevue of New Orleans, you could say. And the film shows the history of this hospital and focuses on what happened inside the hospital during Katrina. The hospital lost power for five days, and they had more than 1,000 people and patients inside there. And it tracks the some of the ways that um, the healthcare workers used untraditional methods to keep people alive, singing and praying for their patients. And there, a lot of miraculous things happened inside that hospital during the storm. And then um, Katrina was used as an opportunity to shutter the hospital, even though it was cleaned by the National Guard and said to be ready to reopen by an Army general. Um, the hospital was shuttered in an attempt to get FEMA money to build a new hospital and to privatize the healthcare system in New Orleans. So what's the current situation with the, the pandemic uh, and uh, New Orleans being hit particularly hard? Um, you know, a lot of people are saying that they wish we had Charity Hospital right now, um, and New Orleans is getting particular, hit particularly hard, and I think that uh, many cities that have vulnerable populations and um, high levels of health disparities are going to get hit really hard. You know, you see the same systemic inequities that cause environmental racism are playing out right now um, with who this pandemic is affecting worse. So we have no time left, but Katie, just one more time. How can people see Mossville when great trees fall, the, the film that we've been discussing? Go to www.mossvilleproject.com, and there you can... Um, Pick and choose which uh, movie theater you want to do a virtual screening with. Um, Mossville will also be premiering um, on the Real South program on PBS um, May 25th. Uh, well, I've seen the film. It, I found it really moving and powerful. And thank you all so much for being on our show. Alexander John Glustrom, Katie Matthews, and Daniel Bennett. And that brings Thanks us to us. the end. Go, go ahead. Thank you so much. It was really my pleasure. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Um, we uh, want to give a special thanks to Susie Stultz, who prepared this segment. Hey, if you're discovering our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand 
at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to, to follow our Facebook and Twitter show pages. You can also visit our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you'll find links to all of our past shows. Um, you can hear our past shows many ways, including uh, even on YouTube. Uh, if you'd like to comment on this or any of our shows, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI has been put in a very difficult economic situation by the pandemic. And if, if you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews that we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., please go right now to our website, give to wbai.org, or call 516-620-3602 to help keep this 100% listener-supported radio station alive in New York and throughout the tri-state area. When I say 100% listener-supported, I mean, unlike other public broadcasters, some very good ones, uh, we don't take ads or things that are the equivalent of ads. We don't take money from foundations. Uh, uh, it was decided many years ago that to remain really independent and pure, BAI would simply rely on listener support. And it's kept us going for a long time, but we've had some rough patches. And right now we are going through a seriously rough patch for a number of reasons, including the pandemic. A number of people have been forced to cut back on their support of the station because they have found themselves out of work. And uh, that's, uh, well, that's part of the problem that we're facing. If you if you are somebody who can afford to support us, we really would appreciate it. If you'd call us at 516-620-3602 or go to our website, give to wbai.org. Um, I know many of you have been generous and contributed to the station in the past, but even if you're already a member of WBAI, we would like to ask you to consider offering us a little extra help during this pandemic. And as an added inducement, we're currently offering WBAI face masks for a contribution of $35. It's a, a great way to protect yourself and to tell the world what, what radio station you like the best. $35 may not seem like a large amount, but those day, donations can add up very quickly. So every six, 60 masks that we sell raises $2,100 for the station. So we really hope that you'll consider doing that, especially now. Uh, we don't know how long this pandemic will last. So in order to make sure that we can continue to bring this show, we hope that you'll step up uh, and help us. Uh, again, you can get that protective mask with the WBAI logo emblazoned across its front by making a $35 donation right now. Uh, going on the phone at 516-620-3602 or online at give2wbai.org. Uh, and thanks for all of us for keeping Community Radio alive in New York City. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow when Howard Stephen Friedman will discuss his new book called Ultimate Price, the, the Value We Place on Life. And a reminder that if you want to become a BAI buddy and, and uh, join the, the, the dinner group right now, um, I think there are still six openings. Uh, again, make that call, 516-620-3602, or go online to give to wbai.org. I hope to see you tomorrow. <laughs>